Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Margaret was born in Tennessee in 1943, the oldest with two younger sisters. Her father was a barber and her mother a store manager. As a child, they moved often before settling down in a small town near Chicago, Illinois. Margaret married at 18. It lasted 10 years and they had two daughters. She went on to marry three more times. By the 1980s, she was living in Las Vegas amongst the neon lights. Ron Rudin made a small fortune building houses in Las Vegas. He also owned a realty company, rental properties, and lent money for mortgages. But when homeowners didn't pay, Ron didn't hesitate to foreclose and evict them, making him numerous enemies. And he liked to dress the part of a villain. People magazine reported his favorite color was black. He wore black pants, black shirts, and even black cowboy boots, and he drove a black Cadillac. To ensure his safety and protect the estimated eight to eleven million dollars he'd amassed, he built a cinder block fence wall around his house, topped with barbed wire, and had it guarded by trained attack dogs. Indoors, there was an alarm system and a collection of weapons, including guns and rifles. Ron liked guns. In a side holster, he packed a 45 caliber pistol, and hidden beneath his pants in his ankle holster, he tucked in a 22. In 1987, Ron and Margaret met at church. She was full of life, and he was instantly attracted to her southern drawl. They made a striking couple, her with her stylish blonde hair and high cheekbones, and he with his silver locks slicked back and megawatt smile. By September, they were married. The newlyweds moved into his residence directly behind the strip mall where his realty company's office was located. Ron and Margaret argued often and their relationship was a rocky one. Couples separated and got back together many times. A year after they were married, a 22 caliber Ruger handgun from Ron's collection disappeared. He strongly suspected Margaret was planning to leave him and had taken it. Ron reported the gun to the police as stolen and went so far as to write a letter to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms stating his suspicions. Margaret complained to her sister Donya about how cheap and tight Ron was with money, and she was aware that he had a wandering eye. But Margaret had never been rich, and she wasn't about to give that up. When things were good, 
Ron provided for her in his will, and she was set to receive 40% of his estate. The rest would go to friends and co-workers. Rather than divorce him, she decided to wait around until Ron was six feet under. Ron's office shared a phone line between his house and his business. Court records reported that Margaret would quietly pick up the phone and listen in on the employees' conversations. They soon caught on and complained to Ron, who responded by ripping it out. When Margaret discovered this, she placed a hidden listening device in Ron's office. Then back at the house, she could eavesdrop on Ron's every word. Four years after they'd married, Ron was concerned for his safety and talked to his lawyer about Margaret. He felt that she had become vicious and that her behavior was becoming more violent. Without Margaret knowing, his lawyer revised his will to reflect that if he died by violent means, that extraordinary steps should be taken to investigate his beneficiaries, and that if one of them was the cause of his death, they would receive nothing. Margaret, too, was concerned for her safety and took a firearm safety course and learned how to shoot a gun. Things improved in their marriage, and in 1993, Ron increased Margaret's share in his will to 60%. But he didn't know Margaret was still listening in on his phone conversations. A year later, she was eavesdropping when she discovered Ron was having an affair, and it was with someone that used to work for him. Margaret was getting ready for the grand opening of her antique shop and purchased antiques, including two steamer trunks. It was a great location, just down from Ron's office. On Sunday, December 18th, darkness had rolled in. It was 8 p.m., and Margaret was still working, so Ron took a stroll over to visit her before continuing home. She worked until 1 a.m., then stopped by another business in the mall where staff were working late and chatted a bit before heading home. Margaret retrieved the handgun she'd stolen from Ron seven years earlier. With the silencer attached, she entered the bedroom. Ron was sound asleep, laying on his right side with his back to the door. Margaret quietly stepped into the room. Ron didn't stir. She took another step, then another, watching him. She raised the gun, aimed it at his head, and pulled the trigger. Then quickly fired two more shots. Ron never moved. But just to be sure, she walked around to the other side of the bed and fired one more bullet into his skull. Ron was dead at 64. It's thought that Margaret went back to her antique store and retrieved the steamer trunk, and perhaps with someone's help, bristled Ron's body inside. 
She stopped by his office and retrieved his will and trust documents. Returned home, then spent the next few hours cleaning blood off the furniture, walls, ceiling, and carpet. Monday morning, when Ron didn't show up for work, his employees became concerned. It wasn't like him. They phoned his house. The rings echoed. Margaret enlisted a friend to rent a large passenger van with a special request to remove the back seat. Ron's body was driven 50 miles to an area near Nelson's Landing on Lake Mojave. His bracelet with his name engraved in gold was removed. The trunk was set ablaze. Nearby, his bracelet was placed on the ground to ensure it would be found. Thirty miles outside of Las Vegas, the handgun was wrapped in several plastic bags and tied with a rubber band and thrown in to Lake Mead. Ron's car was driven to an alley behind a gentleman's club, the keys thrown inside and the doors locked. When Ron still hadn't returned to work on Tuesday, two of his employees visited the local police station and reported his disappearance. Police officers contacted Margaret. The officer told her that they would accept the employee's report unless she would be making one. Margaret knew this didn't make her look good, so she grudgingly filed a report. She told police that when she returned home that night, Ron's car was gone, and so was he. But she wasn't concerned and thought he was just upset that she'd been working so much and he'd gone out without her. The next day, Margaret hired a handyman to clean a carpet stain in the laundry room. He noticed that it appeared someone had attempted to clean a dark brown stain. On Thursday, Margaret's sister Donya visited her at home. She walked in to see Margaret holding Ron's will and trust documents. Five days after Ron went missing, his car was found, covered in a thick layer of dust dappled by the rain. Investigators lifted fingerprints from the vehicle, but determined they didn't belong to either Ron or Margaret. On Christmas Day, Margaret hired a locksmith to get her access to Ron's office. She and her sister spent hours rifling through Ron's papers, searching for financial documents. Four days later, a detective paid Margaret a visit. Without realizing it, she began referring to her husband in the past tense. The detective then moved over to her sister and began speaking with her. When Margaret realized her mistake, she ran over to the detective and tried to cover her tracks and declared, Ron always wears black pants and Ron always wears black boots. But the detective had already noted her slip-up. Margaret rang in the new year by setting out to erase the memory of Ron's death 
by turning the master bedroom into an office. She stripped the bed and removed the box spring and mattress. Then she hired the handyman to remove the carpet. He noticed a strong odor and dark reddish brown stains on the carpet. Then he looked up and on the wall above where the bed had been saw a photo of Margaret with reddish brown spots. When he returned two days later, the bedroom had new carpet and Margaret had moved her photo to the guest room and he noticed the spots were gone. Then he heard a gurgling sound and went to investigate. Court records reported that he discovered a reddish-brown blob bubbling up out of the drain in the bathtub. On January 21, 1995, it had been 34 days since Ron had disappeared. When fishermen discovered his remains in a ravine, stumbling across his skull with four bullet holes. Using dental records, investigators were able to confirm it was indeed Ron. Three twenty-two caliber bullets, along with bullet fragments, were recovered from his skull. And nearby were the burnt remnants of a steamer trunk. Two days later, detectives met with Margaret to tell her they'd identified his remains. She never shed a tear. Instead, she rubbed her knuckle deep into her eye, as if trying to make herself cry. Detectives then spoke with her sister, who told them that she remembered a similar trunk being in Margaret's antique store at the grand opening, but then she never saw it again. A few days later, police searched Margaret and Ron's home. Crime scene technicians sprayed luminol in the master bedroom. Forensic Files episode for Love or Money detailed how the walls lit up like the Milky Way. Investigators knew for certain Ron had been murdered in this room. But one of the investigators had a feeling he'd been here before. Then it hit him. This was a room Peggy had died in. Margaret was heading home when she spotted police vehicles in her driveway. She turned and quickly drove away. Police followed her and watched as she stopped at her sister's. Then she picked up a friend and headed west to California. When she crossed the border, police were forced to stop and contacted the Los Angeles Police Department, who jumped in and followed her. The next morning, she boarded a flight to St. Louis, Missouri, and disappeared. A year and a half later, a recreational scuba diver discovered a 22 caliber Ruger handgun in Lake Mead. Wrapped in plastic, it had been well-preserved, and the best part? was the silencer was still attached, with its serial numbers intact. The gun was traced back to Ron, and that silencer, well, it left very specific marks on the bullets, which ballistics determined was a murder weapon that killed Ron.
Nine months later, prosecutors indicted Margaret for murder with use of a deadly weapon, accessory to murder, and unauthorized intrusion of privacy by listening to Vice. A warrant was issued, but Margaret was still on the run. After two years and spending time in Mexico, she met up with a retired firefighter. They crossed the border into the U.S. and settled into a rundown apartment in a small city outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Investigators used the media to keep Margaret's case in the public eye. After she was featured on America's Most Wanted, someone called in with a tip. Margaret was wearing a black wig and tinted contacts when police moved in and arrested her. She was extradited to Nevada, where she pled not guilty to all counts. In March 2001, it had been six years since Ron was murdered, and Margaret's trial began. From the onset, her lawyer seemed ill-prepared and more interested in gaining fame and fortune from the case than representing his client. The court went so far as to appoint a second attorney to assist in her defense. The trial lasted 38 days. A crime scene analyst testified that although Peggy's blood may have been present on some of the walls, based on where she died, it couldn't have possibly been on the south wall. Margaret was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. She appealed her case based on an effective counsel. The Nevada Supreme Court upheld her conviction. Later, she was granted a new trial, but then a high court overruled the decision. In January 2020, Margaret was granted parole after serving 20 years. Then, in a twist, in May 2022, a judge overturned Margaret's conviction 27 years earlier due to ineffective counsel. The district attorney announced they would not seek a new trial because even if she was convicted of murder a second time, she would likely be sentenced to time served. Margaret still maintains her innocence. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Larry Bill Elliott. His midlife crisis took him to the internet where he found a woman seeking a sugar daddy. He was soon obsessed with Rebecca and would stop at nothing to help her win custody of her children, even if it meant murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. 
Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.